Chapter Six of *The Wishing Horse of Oz* by Ruth Plumley Thompson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Beth Thomas. Chapter Six: A Strange Warning. The first day of the grand celebration dawned clear and bright. The Emerald City had never seemed more sparkling or fair. Flags fluttered from every tower and turret of the palace. Each house wore a garland of flowers and flaunted a dozen silk banners in the fresh spring breeze. The streets were alive with Ozma's subjects suitably costumed for the big parade, and when, shortly after noon, the royal visitors began to arrive, the castle bells broke into a joyous tolling, the hundreds of bands struck up the Oz national anthem, and the magnificent and beautiful floats began to swing into line. The scarecrow's address of welcome at the city gates had been greeted with wild enthusiasm and applause, and now, happy but somewhat breathless, the indefatigable straw man mounted on the sawhorse was leading the illustrious guests into the city, where they were to join the royal procession and proceed in triumph to the west gardens of the park. What shouts and cheers went up from the happy throngs as that impressive company in their glittering coaches or riding their favourite steeds moved majestically through the emerald-studded streets of the capital. Directly following the scarecrow, all in red, and wearing her tallest ruby crown, was Glinda, the good sorceress of the south, her swan-drawn chariot seeming to float by itself. Marching cheerfully after the ruler of the quadlings came Nick Chopper, the nickel-plated emperor of the Winkies, polished to the highest degree but democratically afoot, marching in the centre of his ten splendid uniformed Winkie guards. A few steps behind the tin woodman, and prancing along in hardly restrained exuberance, was the giant horse, proudly bearing Joe King and Queen Hyacinth, King and Queen of the Gillikins and Highboy not only carried his own head high, but he had elevated his sovereigns above everyone else in the procession, so that none could miss the happily smiling rulers of the north. A dazzling blue dragon had pulled the coach of King Cheeriobed, Queen Orin, and Prince Philidor all the way from Sapphire City, and an eye-filling sight was the royal family of the Munchkins. Kabumpo, the elegant elephant, resplendent in his jewelled robe, swayed haughtily along after Cheeriobed's blue coach, waving his trunk in a dignified way to his friends in the crowd. In the canopied seat on his back rode Prince Pompadour and Peg Amy of Pumperdink, easily the handsomest young couple in Oz. Peering mischievously out the side of his gaily painted jinrikisha was the merry red jinn himself, and no one could view the rotund little wizard of Ev without feeling happier. Jinnicky's body was a great red jar. He wore the lid for a hat, and when he grew bored or sleepy, he would simply retire into himself like a turtle. But now he did not feel at all like retiring, and was showering ginger cookies right and left, and simply beaming with interest and jollity. The king and queen of Ragbad rolled briskly along in their shabby but comfortable open coach. With them were Prince Tatters, Eartha, his flowery little princess, and Grandpa, an old soldier with a wooden leg, who had gone through many wars and hardships for the sake of his country. But the shout that greeted the Yellow Knight was loudest and longest of all. The Prince of Corumbia had lived in the Emerald City for many years as Sir Hocus of Pokes, before he was disenchanted and became the young and charming husband of Princess Mary Golden of Corabia. Sir Hocus rode the comfortable camel, and Cammy, who had also spent part of his life in the capital, came in for his full share of the cheering. Princess Mary Golden was mounted on Stampedro, the knight's great stamping warhorse, and Stampedro was a sight to make any little boy's heart beat faster. 
Ato, king of the Octagon Isles, and Samuel Salt, a reformed pirate, now royal discoverer and explorer for the crown, travelled together in Ato's octagon chariot, drawn by eight prancing black horses, with eight footmen in eight-sided hats on the high seat behind his merry little majesty. Roger, the reed bird, perched proudly on the king's shoulder, reading out the signs and street names as they bowled merrily over the gold paving stones, and chuckling to himself in eight different languages. Last, but by no means least, came the king and queen of Sebania, the king's uncle, better known in the Emerald City as Unknunky, and the king's son Ojo. The king and queen were seated sedately in the silver coach of Sebania, but Ojo and his pet bear Snufferbucks were proudly mounted on the back of Roganda, queen of the unicorns. This handsome snow-white beast, who had happened to be visiting Ojo at the time, could not only send her horn darting out like a lance, but could blow it as well. The sound of its clear, bell-like notes made many a trumpeter in Ozma's band turn around with surprise and envy. Drawn up to meet her impressive visitors was Ozma herself. The royal float of her imperial highness was formed like a seashell. On an uncut emerald in the centre sat the little ruler of all the Ozians, dressed in a shimmering white robe, wearing her flashing emerald crown, and never in all the thousand years of her young life had this lovely young fairy looked more beautiful. Also in white were her attendants, Dorothy, Betsy and Trot, each wearing an emerald circlet and carrying a long wand draped with spring flowers. As the scarecrow brought his bright cavalcade to a triumphant halt, Ozma's float, drawn by the hungry tiger and the cowardly lion, swung into place at the head of the line. The other Emerald City floats, first waiting for the royal equipages and mounts of the visitors to pass, swept after them in a burst of music and colour. The Wizard of Oz had chosen a huge revolving green ball on which the nimble little necromancer ably kept his balance as he propelled himself along. After him came Jack Pumpkinhead riding the Iffin, Herbie, the medicine man, clinging precariously to the doubtful dromedary's hump, the pills and boxes in his medicine chest rattling like castanets, was another figure of interest. The float of not a bit more represented a circus ring, and the antics of the clown, Pegasus, Bob-Up, Scraps, Hank, and Gumpy, the patchwork girl's bear, kept the onlookers in a gale of hilarity. Tick-Tock had rigged up a mechanical handcar, which he operated himself. Benny, the live statue of a public benefactor who had come to Oz from Boston, strode solidly along, an expression of pride and deep satisfaction on his well-carved features. Beside Benny marched the soldier with the green whiskers, looking neither to the left or right, as became a man who represented in his own person the whole and entire army of Oz. I have only mentioned the most outstanding of the Emerald City paraders. Besides these, there were countless marches and hundreds of miniature ships, castles, huge make-believe sea serpents and dragons, and in a blaze of colour and harmony they wound through the streets of the capital, ending up at the west gardens of the palace, where the boys and girls from Professor Wogglebug's athletic college distinguished themselves in a series of gymnastic displays, and the Scarecrow established an all-time record for pole vaulting. By the time Ozma had awarded the cups and trophies, the sun had begun to slip down behind the treetops, and in high spirits and with splendid appetites, the royal party and the royal guests turned towards the castle. Here Tick-Tock, who had hurried on ahead, nobly discharged his duties as master of ceremonies. 
The cowardly lion did the honours for the four-footed visitors, leading each to an airy, shower-equipped stall in the royal stable, so they could rest and refresh themselves before the grand banquet. And how shall I do justice to that dazzling affair? For the first time in its history, the magnificent dining hall was filled to capacity. Easily as large as a city park, there was just room for the two long, sparkling, flower-laden banquet tables, the first for Ozma's courtiers and guests, the second for the palace pets and visiting animals. The scarecrow caused a roar of hilarity as the diners took their places by donning a pair of dark spectacles to prevent eye strain from the flashing of so many jewels and crowns. With each course of the long, delicious dinner, Ozma had a different king, queen or celebrity at her side and so cleverly had it all been arranged each guest had the honour of sitting for a time beside the kingdom's little fairy ruler soft music floated down from the balcony where the royal orchestra was concealed behind a bower of palms the bright robes and jewels of the banqueters and the emerald and silver dinner service twinkled and sparkled in the magic glow of a thousand candles the hundred footmen were swift and skilful the speeches were short and merry and never thought Dorothy, looking around with a little thrill of satisfaction. Never has there been so grand and yet delightful a party. The hungry tiger had remembered the tastes and appetites of each of his guests, and not only were they served with the same dainties enjoyed by the two-footed visitors, but everyone had a special dish of his own. Even the dragon seemed to enjoy immensely his matches and mustard then called in a hoarse voice for three pails of hot coals, after which he blew a whole series of smoke rings and went comfortably to sleep. Dorothy and the wizard had, with due modesty, accepted their medals for their discovery of Oz, and the whole company on its feet for this impressive ceremony were suddenly startled by a shrill scream from the patchwork girl. "'His beard! His beard! Look at his beard!' yodeled Scraps. Yes, I think Yodel best describes the excited noise made by this irrepressible maiden. His beard, I said, it's turning red. At the word beard, every eye turned to the soldier with green whiskers, for his beard was the longest and most celebrated in Oz. Why, so it is, exclaimed Dorothy in astonishment. Red, choked the soldier, desperately clutching his famous whiskers. "'Oh, oh, my beautiful green beard! It's red as fire! Oh, oh, how can I ever be the soldier with green whiskers if my beard stays red? Who did this? Wizard, wizard, are you playing a trick on me?' "'Certainly not, soldier. I'd be the last person to tamper with your sacred beard. Quiet, please, quiet. This is extremely odd and disturbing.' Jumping on his chair, the little wizard of Oz looked anxiously round the room. "'Do they hurt? Are red whiskers painful?' asked Scraps, while the royal guests, hardly knowing whether to laugh or sympathise, gazed curiously at the blazing beard of the army of Oz. "'They... they hurt my feelings!' blubbered the poor soldier, holding out his bristling whiskers in disgust. I'll never get used to a red beard, never, never. <laughs> Why not cut it off? inquired Prince Pompadour, with some difficulty controlling his chuckles. What? Cut off my beautiful whiskers? Why, I'd rather lose my head, moaned the soldier with a horrified shudder. How would I look? How would I fight? Oh, oh, this is ridiculous. 
Burying his face in his napkin, Ozma's distracted army rushed violently from the room. Ridiculous, if you ask me, observed the scarecrow in his droll voice. No, no, it's magic, muttered the wizard, stepping briskly down from his chair. Wait, I must consult my book of red magic importance. And I'll go with you, offered Jinnicky, rolling quickly out of his cushioned seat. You know, red magic is my specialty. So arm in arm, the Wizard of Oz and the Wizard of Ev bustled away together. Well, I can tell you what it means without consulting any books, said the Scarecrow, as Ozma, looking rather troubled, again took her place and motioned for others to do the same. It is a warning, declared the Scarecrow, raising his arm stiffly. Someone is coming to beard us in our den. Pardon such an informal reference to your castle, my dear. He made an apologetic little bow to Ozma, and then continued seriously. A danger from without threatens the kingdom of Oz. Who would dare threaten the sovereignty of our country? Demanded the yellow knight, brandishing his sword. What's up? What's up? Neighed Highboy, elevating himself so suddenly, he cracked his head against the ceiling. You should know, being so high, chuckled the scarecrow, who could not resist a joke even when he was most serious. But calm yourself, my good horse. You are not in danger yet. Danger? The short, ugly word dropped like a bomb into that gay and carefree assemblage. Dorothy, with a little pang of dismay, saw the cowardly lion creeping under the table, and feeling in her pocket for her handkerchief, drew out instead one of the wizard's wishing pills. He had given it to her so she could visit the corn-ear palace of the scarecrow the following week, and do it by simply wishing herself there instead of making the journey. Dorothy fingered the pill thoughtfully for a minute or two, then, with a sudden quick motion, popped the small tablet into her mouth. "'Whatever happens, help me to save Ozma and Oz,' murmured Dorothy, and swallowing the pill, she looked sharply around the room for further signs of warning or disaster. End of chapter 6